Well, welcome back to Vice Talks Weekly listeners. This is Tom Salemi, your co-host. It's great to be back here on the podcast chair. Had a great vacation last week. I hope your summer is going well. We're going to be focusing this week's episode on interventional vascular. I spoke with Duke Rolene. Duke is the executive chair of Cordis, the new Cordis, which was just acquired from Cardinal Health. So I'll talk with Duke about how they're planning to build Cordis into a growth engine. And earlier on in the podcast, you're going to hear from Dr. Nick West of Abbott. My colleague, Sean Hooley, associate editor of Mass Device, spoke with Dr. West, uh, kind of got a, an overview, a primer on the interventional space, where it's been, where it's going, and uh, where Abbott is really focusing its efforts moving forward. It's got some great innovation and uh, new developments there. So uh, very happy to have Dr. West back on the podcast. John Hooley will also be filling in for Chris Newmarker, who is away. And Chris has compiled two weeks of Newmarker's Newsmakers for us. So uh, let's hit it. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Chris Newmarker this week. He is uh, headed to the lake, as they say in Minnesota, Sean Hooley. They have 10,000 of them in Minnesota. Did you know that? Uh, no, but it's good to know. <laughs> He's at one of them with the little Newmarkers. And uh, happy to have you here filling in to uh, to bring this week's Newmarkers Newsmakers. How are things? Yeah, things are good. You know, uh, not at a lake, but close enough to the beach here in Boston. So. That's right. We got some summertime temps too. Get some warm, warm weather this week. So anyway, so you're doing double duty. You're going to do the new Marcus newsmakers and you uh, shared an interview you did with uh, Nick West, Dr. Nick West of Abbott. And we'll have that a little bit later, but uh, why don't we just roll into, uh, into this week's new Marcus newsmakers. What is number five? Abbott wins FDA clearance for AI based heart vessel imaging tech. Uh, I believe uh, we actually had an interview with Dr. West on this topic, uh, maybe a month or two uh, past, but uh, Abbott won FDA clearance for its optical coherence tomography or OCT imaging platform that uh, essentially uses uh, artificial intelligence to provide physicians with an enhanced comprehensive view of coronary blood flow and blockages to uh, help. That's fantastic. And this is going to be a, an Abbott heavy podcast because you're, uh, you're, as we mentioned, coming up with a, a conversation you had with Nick West a little bit later. In fact, just in a few seconds after we finish identifying and describing number four on the new Marcus Newsmakers list. Number four, HeartFlow appoints former Medtronic executive as COO. Uh, HeartFlow appointed John Farquhar as its chief operating officer, effective immediately. Uh, Farquhar is a veteran of more than 20 years experience providing strategic oversight, uh, having recently served as VP and GM of Medtronic's aortic business and also holding leadership roles with Medtronic's cardiovascular and diabetes groups. And uh, this, I imagine this is yeah. a, a big appointment for HeartFlow, which recently announced that it's going public with a SPAC merger, oh, $2.8 billion. So uh, another another big move for them. Oh, great news for HeartFlow. And interesting news for Medtronic, as we've commented a few times in the podcast, it seems since the reorganization, we've seen a lot of Medtronic executives taking leadership posts uh, at, at other companies, uh, higher posts. So it really seems to, uh, the reorganization has seemed to sort of refresh the talent pool for uh for medtech and this is just uh sort of the latest 
the latest branch, if it's a tree, or latest splash, if it's a pool. I don't know. I'm beating this analogy to death, but uh, but there we are. Lots of Medtronic folks are out there taking leadership positions. All right. Well, as we tease at the top, we uh, you did an interview with uh, Nick West at Abbott, and uh, what? Why did you uh, reach out to Nick West again? Were you guys uh, commiserating about England's loss in in the soccer World Cup? Not the World Cup, Tom. That's uh, oh right. I'm sorry. 2022. Oh um, gosh, what am yeah, I thinking? Yeah, big, big, big no-no there. Now, <laughs> the, the Euros, the European Championships, and uh, you, you know, know, I got surprised at one point. I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't even the World Cup. What is yeah. everyone tweeting about? Yeah, people, people find a reason to care no matter what. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, we we did chat about England's England's loss in the Euro final about a month ago, but most most of the talk was about uh, the Zion's uh, drug eluding stent, and yeah, it was. Uh, definitely an interesting topic to cover that that won fda clearance for for a new indication and uh you know being in tune with the drug delivery uh space just wanted to learn more about it and it's it's an interesting platform and and learn a lot dr west is uh very very fun to chat with and any talks he gives a lot of great insight into into what's going on there yeah no it was, it was a definitely a data packed interview and that's why we're happy to run it and uh you also wrote an article for both Mass Device and for our drug delivery site, correct? That's right. Yep. Drug Delivery Business News is uh, our sister site for Mass Device, uh, MDO, all, all the related sites, and you know a lot of a lot of drug delivery business is um, diabetes, you know, glucose monitors and and uh, auto injectors, automatic insulin delivery devices. But you know we do, we do a lot of drug eluting stents and uh, vaccine devices have been a new one that definitely some focus has been shed on as well as various, you know, uh, immunology, oncology, uh, treatments, cell therapies, trying to branch into those as well. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and different, you know, methods of delivery, whether it be transdermal or it, however. Uh, so it's, it's just a site that focuses on all things drug delivery. Excellent. Well, another part of our, our great life science network. So we're gonna uh, we're gonna roll right into sort of the opening uh, comments by uh, by Dr. West, and then uh, Sean and I will be back sort of to uh, to walk us through the rest of the interview. So uh, let's kick it off with again hearing from uh, Dr. Nick West. He's Chief Medical Officer and Divisional Vice President of Global Medical Affairs for Abbott's Vascular Business. The Science Drug Eluting Stem Platform uh, is. One of the, it is probably the class leading, best in class drug eluting stent. So, the reason I say that is that um, it has an unrivaled quantity and quality of data behind it. So, there are many stents, many companies produce a variety of drug eluting stents. Abbott has, in fact, stuck with a very similar design, an identical polymer coating, an identical drug dosing and drug type ever since the early days. Now, the advantage that gives us is that we can leverage the entire data behind this stent platform. So although there have been iterations in stent design, some sort of slight tweaks in the structure and so on and so forth, essentially the stent, its polymer, and the drug has remained the same throughout. So therefore we have, you know, I think it's over 15 million implants uh, of this stent platform. We've had over 120 clinical trials performed and there are many still ongoing and the data are all broadly congruent so we have compared with any other platform and i'm not just saying this is a promotional thing we have an unrivaled quality quantity of data more than that 
we have really up to the minute data. And before I tell you about the latest iteration, which is designed Skypoint STEM, I'll just tell you about the latest data we have because it's important. Because if you look at the, the history of drug eluting stents in general, drug eluting stents were devised to answer the problem of what we call instant restenosis. If I wind you back to 1977, when the very first balloon angioplasty was performed by Andreas Grunzig, that was very successful, but stretching arteries with balloons led to about one in three patients coming back with re-narrowing at the site of the stretching. And there was a significant, although thankfully relatively infrequent chance of the patient having to go directly to coronary bypass surgery. So metal stents, and the, the first stents were simply bare metal stents, answered both of those problems. They stopped patients having to go directly to surgery because you could, if you like, tack up the tear in the wall. And they also reduced the risk of re-narrowing from about one in three to about one in 10, which is fine as long as you're not that one in 10. Um, so drug eluting stents, coated drug with a, coated stents with a drug to prevent re-narrowing, and that reduced the risk of re-narrowing to about, you know, one in 20 or less, depending on the nature of, of the disease. And what we've seen is that as drug eluting stents have become basically the backbone of intervention. We've gone from them only being used in a small proportion to now in most geographies, they make up 80 to 90% of the coronary stents used. What we see is that people are going away from just very simple disease where the rates of problems with the stents are small. They're going to much higher, both lesion and patient risk subsets. So what I mean by that is that rather than in the old days, stents were just for, if you like, a focal or a discrete narrowing, they're now used over very long segments of disease. So putting large amounts of stent, long stents into vessels. Also what we call bifurcations, which is like a branch point in a vessel in the left main stem, which is the, the major branch point in the left coronary and high risk subsets like diabetics, patients with acute heart attack. And as we begin to study those patients, of course, the risk of stent failure goes up because the risk of that patient or lesion is higher. All right, so he's giving a lot of great data here, and then he goes on a little further to uh, talk about so, some new information in a, what he says is a particularly interesting group of patients, which is high bleeding risk groups. So let, let's hear what Nick West has to say here. So we've recently been very interested in a, a particular group of patients, which is the, the high bleeding risk group of patients. Now, the reason this group are important is that as you probably are aware, after you've had a stent implanted, you need to take a combination of blood thinners to prevent clot forming within the stent. And that's called antiplatelet therapy. And that's usually made up of two bits, aspirin and a second drug. And there are a variety of those second drugs. The problem with antiplatelet treatment is that whilst it stops a clot forming in the stent, if you are a patient who has a propensity for bleeding, of course, it increases that risk. And as we see populations aging, the complexity of populations gets higher. All of those things put the risk of bleeding up. So for example, age over 75 is a risk factor for bleeding. Uh, taking another blood thinning agent like warfarin or coumadin or some of the novel anticoagulants for an irregular heartbeat, which is increasingly common in elderly patients, history of prior bleeding from the gut, history of stroke, all of these things can increase your risk of bleeding. But of course, those patients still need heart problems being treated. So how can you mitigate that? Now, usually after you have a stent put in, you're on these blood thinning medications for up to a year. But recently we've executed two 
very important studies, the Zions 90 and Zions 28 studies, where we shortened the duration of that dual antiplatelet therapy to 90 days and 28 days respectively in high bleeding risk patients. So we don't stop the antiplatelet treatment altogether, but we stop one part of it. They, they, patients stay on aspirin after 28 or 90 days. And in short, without going to the data in massive detail, both these studies show very similar outcomes. Namely, that when you use the Zion stent in a high bleeding risk patient, you are able to stop half of the antiplatelet therapy, leave them on aspirin alone with no penalty in terms of the ischemic outcome. So no penalty in terms of stents clotting off, heart attacks, need for additional revascularizations, and a lower risk of bleeding. So that's really key data. And we have a lot of patients in these studies, and I, I believe I'm right in saying that we are the, um, we are the, the first stent to have the, the, the broad, every single kind of time point indication in terms of safety and efficacy endorsed by the FDA as an indication for 28 days, 90 days, etc. So this is a, yet another building block, if you like, in the, in the story to, to show why science has not only great clinical efficacy, but also critically safety as well. All right, cool. So we've got great uh, information about Abbott's legacy systems. And now we're going to hear a little more or we're going to hear about their newest system, which is called SkyPoint. Sean, when can you, uh, what can you tell us about SkyPoint? Yeah, so uh, at the end of June, uh, SkyPoint uh, is the latest science stent to receive FDA approval for one month dual antiplatelet therapy, or DAPT, uh, which the approval is for periods as short as 28 days, uh, applying to high bleeding risk patients in the U.S. It also receives CE mark uh, for the same treatment period. And Abbott says that gives Zions the shortest uh, DAPT indication in the world. And it, to, to Dr. West and Abbott, it seems like it's a pretty important step because I believe the previous treatment period was 90 days and it's been even longer than that before. So this is definitely uh, the shortest and as they say, and, and perhaps, you know, a big step forward. Excellent. Now, and you have a good back and forth with him there. So we'll just uh, play the rest of the interview here. That's enough about the data. I'll tell you a little bit more about the new platform and then you can ask me anything else you want to ask me. So as I've already alluded to, um, Abbott has used a similar platform. Originally, back in the day, it was called the Multilink platform. It was a very early bare metal stent. But then we have had some slight iterations to the way that uh, that platform has evolved. We haven't manifestly made any major changes, which is why the FDA has not required further investigational device trials to, to validate it, because the changes have all been very subtle. We've also used the same fluorinated copolymer, which has proven antithrombotic um, qualities and the same drug everolimus which is an anti uh, it's, it's actually an, a cytostatic drug so it stops cells from reproducing and prevents that renarrowing or restenosis in stents so those factors haven't changed what we've done with the new skypoint platform zion skypoint which recently received both ce mark and fda approval so it's now approved in uh, two of the major geographies what we've, what we've made sure is that it has uh, better stent retention on the balloon. Now, the reason that's important is as people take on more complex anatomy, you really don't want the stent coming off the balloon as, you're tr as a clinician is trying to deploy it at, at, the, uh, at, at the site of, um, uh, of the worst disease. Also, when it's deployed, as you can imagine, when you go from a, a effectively a crimped stent on the balloon to an expanded stent, 
some platforms have a, a tendency to, to shorten very slightly. It's all to do with the construction of the stent and how it's made. But as you expand it, sometimes stents shorten a bit. Design SkyPoint does not shorten in any shape or form. And also we've developed a, a novel delivery system, which actually makes it easier to deliver it into the coronary. You get more push, more precise placement. And as I say, with those additional kind of tweaks, if you like, on top of the data we have, and I would say that SkyPoint is, is the only drug-eluting stent, I think I mentioned this earlier on, that is approved for use in, H, in high being risk patients as short as 28 days. We've now got the whole package. We've not only got an up-to-the-minute stent platform with all these, uh, these great features that make a clinician's job easier when they're putting it in, but it's also backed by a vast quantity of clinical data, I say, in both terms of safety and efficacy. Yeah, so the the time that as short as twenty eight days seems to be sort of the point of emphasis. What is the next shortest indication? What what were you moving from? I suppose historically, um, the dual antiplatelet therapy duration was in, in the days of the very early drug eluting stents. It varied from stem platform to stem platform, and of course, those decisions were made not necessarily on the basis of evidence, they were made on the basis of the trials that were originally done. And they were respectively for the first platforms, which were Cypher and Taxus, uh, four and six months or six and four months respectively. In 2006, at the European Society of Cardiology, there was a big furore about the higher rates of stent thrombosis. That's the clotting off of stents that was seen with drug-eluting stents. And that was put down to people not continuing antiplatelet therapy for long enough. Now, in actual fact, probably it's because clinicians weren't paying enough attention to the implant technique. And I'm not doing down my colleagues there because I was, <laughs> I was an interventional cardiologist at, at that time uh, and in practice. So everyone kind of as a knee-jerk went to 12 months of dual antiplatelet therapy. So everyone went to 12 months with aspirin indefinitely after that. And what we've seen since then is we've seen kind of almost two schools of thought because the longer you continue antiplatelet therapy, one would think that if antiplatelet therapy is something that stops blood uh, blood cells from sticking together and sticking to the stent, that should reduce the risk of the stent clotting off and or patients having a heart attack after a stent being put in. The downside, of course, is the longer you're on antiplatelet therapy, the higher your risk of having a bleeding event. So somewhere there's a kind of a there's an equipoise between those two things. And what we saw was a very large trial in the USA called the DAPT trial, which showed that there was benefit in continuing antiplatelet therapy out to two years as long as patients didn't bleed, it reduced heart attack and so on and so forth. That was in the US and that was very much the practice in the US, whereas in the Europe and in the Far East, and this was several years ago, there was a feeling that we could probably shorten antiplatelet therapy and studies began to come out looking at nine months, looking at six months, and now we've moved to a point where there is an acknowledgement that yes, we would like to leave patients on as long as they can tolerate it, but for certain patients, it's not feasible to leave them on antiplatelet therapy for a long time. So there's been a lot of focus on this high being risk or HBR, which is the term group of patients and trying to shorten it as much as possible. So we're not saying everyone should necessarily shorten their antiplatelet therapy, but we're saying that for those patients with high bleeding risk, who, for example, you know, a bleed could be catastrophic, you can have the security of knowing you can stop as early as 28 days without penalty, if you like. Yeah, and then obviously you also said it's easier to place and allows for treating larger blood vessels. So does that almost 
open up the patient population to which it can impact and yeah. change it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think if you talk to, uh, and thank you for reminding me of that, I didn't mention the larger blood vessels piece, but, uh, but you're absolutely right. The, if you if you go and speak to any interventional cardiologist who's been practicing for more than five or ten years, they'll tell you where have all the simple narrowings gone, because back when we were all training, we trained on the very straightforward discrete narrowings. Now I'm not saying those have all gone, but they certainly they make up a much smaller part of most people's practice than they used to, and we're now confronted with much more complex disease, much more diffuse disease. Often it's more severe and it's in more vessels and that requires the stent to be more user-friendly and that's why some of these features are so important we've talked a bit about the deliverability we've talked about stent retention which is obviously very important and you've had, you've mentioned the the larger expansion size now now that's important because clearly most coronary arteries taper they start off big and as they sort of extend over the surface of the heart they, the, the, the diameter gets smaller. They don't necessarily get narrow, but the diameter gets smaller as they subtend a smaller area of the heart muscle. Of course, generally, stents are tubular. They are a mesh, but they are tubular. So when you deploy it, you're going to run the risk of either it being too big at the bottom end or too, or too small at the top end. So having the ability to taper your stent post hoc, if you like, by putting a balloon in and stretching the top end and not lose any of the uh, structural integrity of the stent and its ability to deliver the drug and prevent re-narrowing is clearly very, very important. I should also mention that, you know, as disease gets more diffuse, longer stents are, are needed. And as you as we develop these longer stents, clearly the issue of taper becomes even more present. And, and it's always, you know, it's silly a couple of weeks after announcing the new approval and everything to ask what's next, but it's always the question is, is what's next? So, you know, are you... Are you looking for, you know, shorter uh, indications or, you know, different? I'm sure you're always working to develop it further, but, you know, is there anything next? Sure. I mean, we always, I mean, clearly we, we never stand still in terms of innovation. We're always interested in innovating to, to generate novel devices or iterations of the devices we have that can meaningfully impact patients' lives. So that's desperately important. Um, and anything that is going to impact patients' lives and patient outcomes is going to be good for clinicians. It's going to be good for healthcare systems in, in general. Yes, we, we are working on, if you like, the next next generation. We've got some ideas to look at. I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that if you look at the field of drug-eluting stents, they've evolved enormously. If I think back to when I started to use drug-eluting stents in the early 2000s, I did a lot of the first demand studies when I was a fellow in New Zealand. Um, They've changed hugely. I mean, a lot of those stents really were not deliverable, and there were marked differences between the platforms in terms of the feel and so on. But I think that now we're getting to the stage where stents, I'm not saying they've reached terminal evolution, but we are at a stage where if you change one thing, we run the risk of changing other things too. And so there are other iterations that other competitors are looking at, like ultra-thin struts, which could offer some, uh, which potentially are thought to offer some benefits. They haven't been proven in clinical trials, even against our platform, I have to say. And you sacrifice other things like ability to see them on an x-ray, which of course is very important when you're trying to place it in the coronary artery. Similarly, uh, other stent platforms have had problems as they've narrowed the stents down to make the stent more deliverable. They have inadvertently made the stents more prone to not only shortening, but also collapsing inwards if they're re-instrumented with a, with a balloon. So I'm not saying there's nowhere to go, 
but I think we're reaching the point where there's, where there's not so much focus on the stent itself. And we think we have a stent that is just about as optimal as it can be. But we also have to think about not only the stent, but also, as we've alluded to, the pharmacology, the drugs are very important, and also use of other technologies, such as the pressure wire, intracoronary imaging with systems like our own uh, OCT system, optical coherence tomography, to guide the implant and really optimize that implant. So it's really about the whole package. The stent is not the only answer. Clinician training, use of adjunctive technologies, and use of the right pharmacology. We believe imaging is a key part of this moving forward. All right. Well, great job with that interview, Sean Hooley. And uh, I cut out, again, more soccer stuff at the end. But uh, I know Dr. West was concerned about a certain Harry Kane joining Man City. Is is that happening? How, what's the status of that? I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm at the edge of my office chair. Here. Tell me. I don't count myself an insider. Uh, so <laughs> I can't tell you definitively if it's happening. Uh, the rumors seem to suggest that it may. But at the same time, as far as I know, this weekend, he might be lining up for Tottenham against Man City. So we, we will see how that goes. But uh, yeah, Dr. West is certainly a little perturbed by uh, the potential of their star player leaving. We'll, we'll see how that goes. And, and uh, Nick West's team is which one again? Tottenham. And you're a fan of AFC Richmond, right? <laughs> I am, but uh, <laughs> very big fan of AFC Richmond, but also also Liverpool in, in real life. In real life, is your Liverpool team? Yes, we're a couple of Ted Lasso fans here. So uh, season two, I definitely enjoyed episode two a little more than episode one, but I yeah. uh, can't wait for it to get its stride again. Let's uh, let's roll into uh, to item number three on the new markers newsmakers. Okay, number three: Intuitive Surgical to invest five hundred million dollars in its Georgia campus. It's expected to expand its Peachtree Corners campus uh, northeast of Atlanta which is uh, news coming out of Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's office. Um, obviously, major player in the robotic surgery space. Uh, they've had a presence in Georgia for over a decade, and they're looking to expand the specific campus to 750,000 square feet of manufacturing and engineering operations, as well as training facilities for surgeons and hospital care teams, as well as administrative offices. So just more expansion for one of the biggest players in robotic surgery. Let's uh, let's move into number two on the new Marcus Newsmakers. Number two, Phillips hit with another class one level respiratory devices recall. This is evidently becoming a <laughs> bit of a theme, um, yeah. unfortunately. But yeah, Phillips, uh, their, Phillips Respironics announced in an urgent field safety notice back in June uh, involving thousands of V60 plus ventilators uh, that if the oxygen flow is partially blocked for any reason, the system will go on providing the patient with lower oxygen flow rate, issuing a low priority alarm. Uh, no deaths related to the issue, but 61 reports of incidents and 25 injuries, according to FDA. Um, so this is another tough, tough break for Philips, which had a recall of millions of its sleep therapy systems. Uh, and they, in the, their July 26 earnings call, their CEO said the company was no longer taking orders of sleep therapy systems as it focused on addressing the problem. So the respiratory uh, business at Philips is definitely uh, 
in flux right now, it seems. That's that's difficult news for sure. And, and in relation to that, Chris Newmarker had wrote a story for August 6th about ResMed, uh, where he was uh, listening to the uh, quarterly call and CEO Mick Farrell said ResMed, which of course is being seen as the one who can step up and, and hopefully uh, fill any gaps that are created by the Phillips recall is uh, is bumping into some supply chain problems. So uh, this uh, is uh, this is something we'll have to continue to keep an eye on. I should note that Chris Newmarker wrote this story and he added uh, at the bottom that analysts were mentioning that the situation could be an opportunity for ResMed. But uh, a few days later, as you said, he seemingly updated with the news about the supply chain issue. So we'll see how that plays out. We definitely will. And hopefully we'll have, we're hoping to have Mick Farrell on the podcast in a couple of weeks to hear directly from him. So uh, big, big story. Uh, unfortunately, it's uh, we've seen a few recall stories this year uh, in MedTech. So uh, they're they're all bell, they all bear watching and uh, hopefully they'll uh, they'll work out. So let's uh, move on to uh, to number one on the new Marcus Newsmakers list. Number one big news that came on Friday of last week: Medtronic to acquire Intersect ENT in a one point one billion dollar deal. Intersect ENT a maker of ear, nose, and throat medical devices that propel in Sinuva sinus implants mm-hmm. designed to open sinus passageways to deliver anti-inflammatory steroids to aid in healing and treat uh, chronic rhinosinusitis. And uh, yeah, Medtronic, uh, just another acquisition for the, the, the Medtech giant. It's uh, $28.25 per share in an all-cash transaction expected to close towards the end of Medtronic's 21-22 uh, fiscal year, subject to the obvious closing conditions. Yeah, no, the, the close is going to take some time. I actually tried to see if we could get a Medtronic person on to talk about this. It's been a hugely popular story on social media. I just happened to share it on LinkedIn, and it, it really got a lot of traction. I know our internal SEO numbers were kind of off the charts as well. So two two really high-profile companies. Uh, Intersect ENT is one of those cool med tech stories that we follow. Lisa Ehrenhardt, of course, was the, the first CEO, and they've, they've gone on since then and have gone public under her watch and have grown uh, since her move to Abbott. And now Medtronic, which of course is keen on high growth and, and finding new businesses, uh, made this very robust acquisition of this space. So it's going to be uh, interesting to see how it all plays out and uh, what we can find out from Medtronic a little bit later. We'll have the, their head of ENT on the Medtronic Talks podcast probably in a couple of months. So uh, so we'll we'll get whatever information we can for you from them. But uh, great, great stuff there, uh, Sean Hooley. Thanks for uh, giving us the new Marcus Newsmakers. Happy to uh, fill in. They're, they're tough shoes to fill, but I, I try my best. Well, Duke Rolene, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Tom. It's great to be back on. How you been, man? Doing great. I feel like this is a, a serial story. We're kind of following, uh, <laughs> following you along as your, as your concept develops. But uh, I invite anyone who uh, is interested in your backstory to, to, to we'll provide a link to the previous podcast when you were on. Normally, I, I like to introduce people's uh, route into, into MedTech, but uh, we've covered that. And you've uh, just spun Cordis out or acquired Cordis from Cardinal. And I think that's the news of the day. And that's what we, we sort of want to focus on. But I, I do want to provide some, some, some context. Uh, so, Duke, if you would sort of just walk people through what you have been working toward 
for the last couple of years. And then we can get into why Cordis is sort of a, a realization of that, or at least a continuation of that as this moves forward. What, what, does, what has been uh, occupying your, your time in MedTech for the last couple of years? I appreciate the, uh, the seriality of, of what we're doing. <laughs> it, it has, it's evolving as we speak. So uh, it's, I appreciate you guys following the story. It's a good story. So, what what I've realized over the last 20 years in this world, and it's not a new epiphany for anybody who is in the value creation business in healthcare, or quite frankly, in any industry, is that growth drives value. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're growing in, in med tech world, if you're growing at one or two percent, your value that you're trading at from a valuation standpoint, multiple standpoint, is a lot lower than if you're growing at 10%. And the difference in in the world is is significant billions of value. Mm-hmm. So what what I've built my career on is starting companies, getting them to a point, and then transitioning them to bigger companies. The companies that you know I, I focus on, I think they're growth drivers, and growth drivers are are basically as we've talked about before technologies that have the ability to influence either the top line revenue of a small company or the divisional revenue of a large company. Mm -hmm. And what we've done is we've put those really cool and interesting and disruptive technologies into bigger companies and they've taken those companies and or those technologies and grown them. The, The idea matured in my mind, which is, hey, listen, instead of taking all of these interesting technologies that uh, we're developing, can we take these technologies and uh, instead of selling them to a bigger company, could we sell them to ourselves? Could we effectively Hmm. become the chassis that has the ability to commercialize these innovative growth driver technologies? So Cordis is is the final stage of that evolution. Cordis is a very, very big company. It's got global reach. It's got representation in 60 uh, countries around the world. It's got 4,000 employees. It's got just under a billion dollars in revenue. And so it's a very good chassis, but it's in desperate need of growth. So the idea of taking growth drivers and putting it into this beautiful chassis that needs growth, which is Cordis, is the materialization of you know, uh, of my vision here. So let's, let's take a moment and just sort of introduce, reintroduce folks to, to Cordis that you, you acquired it from Cardinal health. They bought it from J and J four or five years ago, five or six years ago for uh, a lot more than uh, you paid for it. So good for you. Um, did what, what assets are you getting? What, what does Cordis now sell? So Cordis sells, uh, it has an enormous number of SKUs. It has stents, it has sheets, it's got wires, it's got balloons. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a company that um, at one point was the pinnacle of medical device companies. Yep. It was at the, at the front, uh, incredibly high, what I would call brand awareness. So uh, everybody knows Cordis that's in the healthcare space. Uh, we're on most shelves, if not all shelves. We have some really good products. What's happened through the, the last 10 years is the brand awareness has remained high. Uh, the brand strength 
which is differentiated from brand awareness, the brand strength has fallen off because there's been very limited investment. There has been uh, very little optimization, very little, there's been, aside from the Minx, which is a closure device, Mm -hmm. um, that's a great technology. There's been very little acquisition activity. And so as this has happened, the, the Cordis brand has remained, you know, uh, the awareness has remained high, but the strength has gone down. What, what my vision is, is to, <clears throat> is to resuscitate the brand strength. It's mm-hmm. to leverage growth drivers. And, and we have a model to do that, to infuse at a very, very, uh, you know, fast pace technologies that uh, reorient Cordis to be a market leader, not only from a brand awareness standpoint, but from a brand strength and a contribution standpoint. So to me, when you say that the brand awareness is high, but the brand strength is low, that says to that people know the brand, but they don't think much of the brand. Am I oversimplifying it? Yeah. I mean, think about JCPenney, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody knows JCPenney, but, but many people are going to Nordstrom over JCPenney, right. right? Why is that? Well, everybody knows JCPenney because it's a storied brand, but mm-hmm. it's, it's not got the products that people are demanding and wanting right now. It's mm-hmm. got some, it's got core products that are good and people might go there for, you know, the basics. But if you want something a little bit more differentiated, you're going to Nordstrom or even Marcus or, you know, Target or any of these other brands that have the strength and the products that they want. That's what's happened with Cordis, right? So we, we've got certain products that people want, uh, but the differentiation has not been there. So that's a great, great uh, summary of what Cordis is. Now let, I want to back up and, and understand how you came to acquire it. When we've talked in the past, uh, you've worked for a few years now with, with private, equity group, private equity groups like KKR. Uh, this uh, deal, I believe, is with uh, involving Hellman and Friedman. Uh, let's talk a bit about the the finances, the 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 the, the dollars that allowed you to make this deal. Who's who's working with you in, in acquiring Cordis? Like anything, it's it's one hundred percent a team. And uh, you know, Hellman Friedman. The relationship with Hellman Friedman goes back a long time. The chairman is a good friend of mine, Philip Hammerschold. Uh, he and I have often talked about you know, constructing a new model that allows for uh, innovation in med tech to materialize without market risk. He understood the growth driver chassis model. And uh, when we identified Cordis as a potential chassis, um, it was like, let's go after it. Obviously, KKR, you know, we paid a billion dollars for the company and then we have an additional allocation of 300 million for uh, this accelerator engine that's mm-hmm. going to produce growth drivers. So we have a billion three in it. That's a big, big check to write. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we, we brought in our, 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 our trusted partner, KKR, and then uh, Ajax, which is my investment engine, uh, also came in for, um, you know, about $100 million. So oh, okay. it's a really, really strong syndicate. I would say the one thing that that there is complete alignment on structurally as well as uh, philosophically is this concept of bringing growth to an engine that needs growth. Um, my expectation is that we spend a lot more than a billion three on resuscitating Cordis. Um, in five years, I want Cordis to be 
to have the brand strength that it had 15 years ago, which means mm-hmm. that we're not only going to develop products, but uh, we are on hunt to license products as well as to acquire te- products that can go in and create a, a really interesting engine. So uh, just just to be clear, so you, you paid the, the billion for the com- for Cordis. You mentioned another three hundred thousand dollars, the three three hundred million dollars. Uh, are you putting? Are you are you planning to put more into that? You said one point three. Are you spending one point three on building this company out, or were you including the purchase price in that one point three? No, we're going to. Pro- I, I would imagine that we spend another billion on top of the billion okay. three, mm-hmm. right? So um, the the goal is not to is not to spend money. The goal is to create a powerhouse in the space and a powerhouse that has. Uh, the flywheel benefit of having an independent engine um, from Cordis, which mm-hmm. is this accelerator co, which has a responsibility of identifying, licensing, buying, or building technologies that are going to be synergistic and beneficial to Cordis as we as we resuscitate that brand. That's a that is the interesting story right there. I mean, the, the fact that we bought Cordis. Um, there's a lot of people that wanted to buy. There were 13 other bidders for Cordis. We ended up being wow. uh, the victors and winning it. Uh, and there were a lot of buyers because it's a great brand. It's a great it's a great portfolio of products. Um, but what makes the story really interesting from a business model standpoint is how we are structuring this flywheel engine called the Cordis X to produce for the commercial engine, the manufacturing engine, which is Cordis, on a perpetual basis, right? Even if we're a public company, you will still have Cordis X responsible for putting in uh, products. Um, so we don't get um, we don't get into the same situation that a lot of the big companies get in, which is you know R and D gets shut or limited because. Um, they have PL constraints that require mm-hmm. them to find money. And usually that comes out of R and D. We don't have that. Let's focus more on that then on the, your R and D and your, your growth plans and, and Cordis X. What, what does this look like? Are you going to have sort of an external acceleration program that's feeding products into Cordis? And are you identifying areas you're going to grow into before developing products for, or do you let the innovation sort of lead you into into different therapies and, and different technologies? Yeah, it's a great question. So maybe one way to think about it is think about a continuum where um, Cordis on the one hand needs sustaining innovation, okay? And on the very end, other end of the continuum is transformational innovation, okay? Mm-hmm. Right now, and then in between, there's incremental and then there's synergistic. So you have sustaining you have sustaining engineering and innovation, which means that Cordis is good at producing a modification to an existing product. They're good at that. Big companies are good at optimizing based on feedback from customers, what they should do to their stent. They can do that. What, they're, what the venture firms are good at is doing transformational innovation, right? So they're good at going and taking ideas that have breakthrough market opportunities, breakthrough technical innovations, and funding those. That's what they do. Venture firms fund those. But success 
isn't tied, obviously, to, of, of a company like Cordis to just sustaining sort of modest marginally, uh, marginal improvements. Mm-hmm. And it becomes very, very expensive, on the other hand, to be buying transformational technologies, right? So what I'm focusing on at Cordis is the middle area, which is the incremental and the synergistic, right? So what are incremental and synergistic improvements? Incremental technologies are technologies that improve on, but don't displace the standard of care. So like an example would be um, taking an existing procedure and making it making technologies that make it say safer or faster or simpler. It's effectively a better mousetrap. Okay. Mm -hmm. And venture doesn't want to fund that. And the strategics aren't good at doing that. They're good at slight optimization. They're not good at developing um, and approving on existing procedures. Right. And then, and then the other, and then synergistic is something that's also not funded by the strate- by the venture firms, and it also doesn't fall into the core competency or the purview of the strategics, and that is developing technologies that derive their primary value from relationships with related products. Right, so it's a complement to a core therapeutic device, but um, it's. And it's standardizing the procedure. It's not something new. So venture guys don't want to fund that because it's it's not it's not going to get them a 10x return. Mm-hmm. And obviously the 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 uh, the strategics can't do it because they don't have the capability in house. And it takes too long, and the quality systems and stuff like that. So we're really focused on that middle area. And Excelco is developed to do that. What is Excelco? Excelco is basically an engine that's focused on, think about Excelco as the Rangers to the army, right? Cordis is the army. Mm-hmm. Excelco is the, the Rangers, is the Navy SEALs. It's figuring out what we need, where we're going to get it, and putting a timeline towards it. And, and where we're going to get it is, is divided into three areas. We can buy it we can build it or we can license it. Hmm. And the key thing there is a cadence that allows for these things to happen um, at, at a pace that uh, brings the renewal and the strength back to the Cordis brand. It's a lot of, it's a lot of information. I just no, want to make sure you get it. So to, to butcher your, your JCPenney analogy, it sounds like JCPenney is your anchor store. You're building all the stores that go next to it in the shopping center. What you're not doing is building a, a store two miles away. That's going to. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So, how, what does that look like? The Excelco is it? Who 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 is in there? Is it engineers? Is it business development people? Is it investors, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and residents? What does that look like? Yeah, it's a really interesting model. So, I, I within Cordis, I th- I focus on four growth areas, right? I focus on products that can be clustered. So you, you can't go and create a franchise within a company like Cordis without a bunch of products differentiated and commoditized that uh, allow you to own the patient from you know the time they hit the operating table to the time they're out. So we have to have cluster. We have to have alignment between what Cordis needs and what it's capable of, of selling and what the what, what, what the growth drivers are developing. So we're not going to go develop, you know, cancer drugs 
because it doesn't align with the Cordis call point right now. Mm-hmm. Right? We're looking for products that can leverage Cordis's power, right? And their power is their reach. It's their global reach. So we want products that can fit right into that. And then we want products and categories that can lead, right? So that can, that can take, take, a, take something where we're second or third or fourth or fifth and get them to you know, a number one or number two position in the marketplace. So how do we do that? So we've developed a list of 26 products that we need. Some are refreshments, some are new innovations, some are bag fillers, and uh, some are transformational. And what Cordis X does is it goes, it has that list and it goes and finds technical people, engineers, innovators, quality, manufacturing, regulatory, people that have specific skill sets. And it mates basically what we need with what they can produce. So instead of having to go create a company around a technical innovation that Cordis wants, we have the ability to basically go to an engineer or an engineering team and say, hey, we need a new delivery system for our stent. You know, you couldn't get that funded by a venture firm. And and like I said, Cordis isn't able to do that right now. Let's have you do that. And we'll fund it and it'll transfer into Cordis at a predetermined exit value. And those guys are happy. There's no market risk. There's no technical risk. There's no financing risk. All they have to do is execute on what they're really good at. Mm-hmm. And then we transfer it over to Cordis and Cordis does what they're really good at, which is selling, commercializing, manufacturing, and marketing. That is the power of Cordis X. So it's basically Cordis X is a bunch of, it's an, I call it open source. There's a bunch of indivi- individual engines that are, that are developing technologies for Cordis based on Cordis's demand for those technologies. Interesting. So you'll be, you would be working with uh, product design shops and the like, you know, folks that are maybe working on behalf of some of the larger OEMs to design products, you would have something, a similar relationship with them or am I missing the distinction? No, I think it's, 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 it's one level deeper, right? So okay. we're taking, we're taking people that have worked with me in the past that are exceptional engineers or mm-hmm. exceptional talent. And we're saying, okay, we need, you know, you know, let's say we wanted to go into, let's say we needed a new delivery system for a stent, which we do. We would say to, to one of these people, listen, you're really good at the mechanical components of this. Instead of, mm-hmm. you know, instead of building a company around it, take your three guys, work with Cordis, understand what the customer needs are, understand what the design requirements are, and then build it. And then we're going to buy it from you. Okay. So it's it's not really contracting because contract shops typically require input from uh-huh. someone who's the ideation person. What I'm going to are ideation people who can then develop the product and put it into Cordis and have Cordis mainline it and mainstream it for manufacturing. Okay. No, so they're individual you. people and individual teams, and we have 14 of them right now going. Oh, wow. Okay. And those 14 teams, they are external? Yes, they're all okay. external. None all of external. them are employed by Cordisex. They're all funded by Cordisex. So explain to me the relationship between Cordis and, and Cordisex. I just want to make sure I understand. Yeah. 
So just like my analogy about the army, right? So the army um, is the big engine and then you have the advanced team, which is the Rangers or the Navy SEALs um, or the Green Berets. Um, That is the, but they're, they're both part of the same U.S. military. Cordis and Cordis X are both part of the same investment group, Mm -hmm. right? So we paid a billion three, 300 million is allocated to Cordis X, a billion is allocated to buying the asset. So it's the same company, but it's structurally and mechanistically independent from Cordis because what we want to do, we want to focus on three things. We want to focus on pace, which is really hard to do if everything has to be done within the four walls of a big organization like Cordis or Boston, right? So we want to be nimble and quick, just like the Navy SEALs are, just like the Rangers are on developing products. And then we want to transfer those into Cordis. And then their job literally is to, is to produce them. So um, the, the, it is one entity. Like I said, it's, it's one military, it's one engine, but mechanistically, Cordis X is independent of Cordis so that it's not reliant upon the decision-making infrastructure that's typical to a big company. It's not required on the quality system and uh, it's not required to comply with initially uh, all of the, um, the sort of tedious and required, but tedious and, and, and slowing down procedures that uh, beset a bigger organization. Do you, two, two more questions. Um, sure. Cordis, we talked about sort of the assets, the, the products that you acquire, the businesses that you acquired. What about uh, uh, the, the, the people? Uh, how many of those came over? How many of those will be working with you? And, and how do you see sort of managing the, the culture? Is there a need to, to, to change the culture? Is there, have there been discussions as to what there means? Because I'm sure, you know, people who have done things for a long time are comfortable with the way they're being done. And this is obviously a, a major departure from the way things have been done. Been done. It's a, uh, there is a big cultural shift, right? I, I think that uh, we conveyed out of Cardinal Health about 4,000 employees. And mm-hmm. like I said, we have sales infrastructure all over the world. Um, I, I think the the sales team, the marketing team, the manufacturing teams, everybody's been incredibly patient with initially J and J and second with Cardinal health um, patient in that they have been out there selling products without innovation or upgrades that make it exciting. And so now we're talking about bringing in that enthusiasm, that excitement, that newness Um there are challenges and there are opportunities associated with that, right? The opportunity is freshness and, mm-hmm. and the idea to, to bring in a fresh perspective and fresh product, et cetera. The challenge is that the, the muscle, the muscle that's required to launch products, the mes- muscle that's required to brand innovation hasn't been flexed in a long time. And that's going to require some change. I, I focus on, three things for Cordis, three very fundamental things that I think are the recipe for success. The first is being a low cost provider of care. The second is having differentiation, right? So being differentiated from, uh, from other t- companies based on bre- introducing real innovation. And the third is pace. Mm-hmm. And, and, and why are those three things important? 
they're at one level asynchronous. They don't they don't go together, right? Cardinal Health was the low cost provider of care, right? Companies like Inari, companies like Shockwave, companies like Silk Road, where there is high differentiation, they're very, very focused on innovation, product, right? But they're not focused on low cost. They can't be because they don't mm-hmm. have the requisite product portfolio to, in a capitated pay market, be the low cost provider, right? So you have people that are focused on cost and you have companies and people that are focused on innovation. And then you have pace, right? There are companies out there that have a lower threshold for innovation. They're more commoditized products. They're able to put product into the market relatively fast because the products aren't differentiated. Well, the vision I have is, can you put all three of those strings together? Can you create sort of a synchrony out of those asynchronous parts? Mm -hmm. Can you be the low cost provider? Can you have product that's differentiated? And could you do it at a pace that's, un, that's not been seen before in the industry. When you put those three things together, there's a real, real need and a real opportunity. The challenge for the organization is we have to have, we have, to have people that understand that. So mm-hmm. the first thing we have to do is organize all of these 4,000 people around that mission, around that, around that vision. The second thing we need to do is we need to make sure that the right people are on board and the right people are people that embrace it people that want to be, you know, catalysts of change and, and, and sort of, you know, believe in what we're doing. We started off in a good spot, right? We, we, out of the, the 4,000 people that we wanted to convey, I think 3,995 conveyed. So five people left. So, it was an, so they, they heard the story and they're excited mm. about it, right? So, we need to get people that can do it. And then the third thing is we need to infuse into the organization through very, very strategic telegraphed communication, um, the component pieces that allow everybody to know exactly how they individually are comp- contributing to either cost, innovation, or pace. It, it, it's, you know, it's a four-year, it's a turnaround. It's a mm-hmm. four-year play, but the principles are very simple. And the team that's in place wants to do it. Obviously, we'll supplement that team with people that are exceptional. I think over the next four years, we want we don't want to be only known for you know an innovative business model and you know new innovations and pace and, and low cost. We want to be known as an engine that is someone to be reckoned with that that is going to take over take over and be a, a a really prominent player in the med tech, uh, in the med tech scene. And, and uh, just a, a housekeeping point, the, the various lawsuits and things that were surrounding Cordis, that those are remaining with Cardinal. You didn't, you didn't acquire those as well. That's correct. Okay. Final question. Uh, what does Cordis look like in in five years again going to the the shopping mall analogy you know or what will the role of stores look like will they be similar to what they are today will you be touching the same therapeutic points that you will today or do you see yourself sort of inching since you're kind of operating in that middle ground how far do you see yourself following kind of in those in those increments and in those those adjacent increments uh, yeah. will will the company look different yeah, so I think the company will definitely look different. Yeah. Um, 
the goal, the goal is to build on the core, right? So it's to build on the foundation of commercial engine that we have. It's to build on the foundation of product that we have. But we have to, we have to do three things. We have to refresh the existing portfolio. Then we have to add other products to the portfolio so we can own the patient from you know, uh, access to closure. We have access products and we have closure products, but we have big gaps in between access and closure that we need to we need to fill in. So it's it's supplementing the portfolio. And then the third thing, which I think is really exciting, is uh, going into areas where um, we can bring real differentiation and innovation to um, to a portfolio that's then optimized. So we'll have a we'll have refreshed products. We'll have a portfolio that that is full service from start to end of a case uh, in the endo and the the coronary uh, uh, call points. But then we'll start adding really really interesting innovation to it. That is um, what what I built my career on, which is b- building innovation for 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 chassis. We'll start infusing that. I think Cordis in uh, my goal is in in four years for Cordis to be growing at six to eight percent. It's for um, uh, uh, it to be a, a highly highly regarded company with very significant brand strength, and it's for uh, it to be not only uh, a place that current employees want to stay, but potential employees want to come to. You know, everybody mm-hmm. wants to work for Apple. Everybody wants to work for Google. Everybody wants to work for Facebook. Does everybody want to work for Boston, J&J, Medtronic, Cordis? No, right? We want to change that paradigm. And I think that the catalyst for changing that paradigm, for making the best people want to come to Cordis is by, you know, that asynchronous synchrony. It's doing three things together that can't and historically have not been done together and doing them well so that we bring a freshness and an acceleration to the industry that's been been hard to realize. So are there are there any more uh, uh, chapters to this uh, the story that we'll be following, or is this sort of the is this the horse that you'll be riding for the next uh, the next few years? No, I mean I think we have some heavy lifting to do uh, in the next few yeah. years. Um, I think the model is replicatable. We're trying to institutionalize you know, all the learning, which happens on a day-to-day basis about how, how we're doing this. And then I think the goal is to, is to do it again. So, um, I, you know, it's, we're, 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 there's not a lot of sleep, but there's a lot of action. And the goal is to make sure that that action has impact. So uh, keep in, keep in touch and, and we'll let you know if we're successful or not. Uh, we'll be we'll be watching, and I'm sure we'll have you on the podcast again. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us, dude. Always great, Tom. Thank you. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Great to have you again, filling in for the uh, the one and only Chris Newmarker, Sean Hooley. Where can uh, folks find you on social media? You can find me. I am Sean Hooley, S E A N W H O O L E Y on LinkedIn, and uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am. Sean Hooley, WTWH. That is my handle. So feel free to 
connect, follow, do whatever. And uh, yeah. Great. And uh, you can find Chris Newmarker on Twitter. He is at Newmarker as in a Newmarker. He is on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, same spelling. And I'm on uh, Twitter at MedTechTom. I'm on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. And uh, yes, please do uh, connect with us on those social media channels and please do tag us when you share this podcast episode on those channels. Be great to be part of uh, of your MedTech conversations. And uh, yes, please do share. Please do subscribe. You can find Device Talks Weekly on every major podcast channel. You can also find the Medtronic Talks podcast there as well. If you push subscribe or follow, future episodes of the podcast will be sur- sent directly to your phone and uh we get the bulk of our listens probably the first weekend that we put these out or at least the least half of them so uh, there are a lot of people who are subscribing and are seeing it before we post it on social media so uh, please do uh, be one of those folks make sure you get all uh, all the news as soon as you possibly can and uh that is a wrap thanks again for for joining us on this episode of the device talks weekly podcast tune in next week we will have another great episode waiting for you Oh,